Hello and welcome to the Moneyball Benefits Podcast. My name is Scott Wham. I'm the Director of Compliance and Innovation here at One Digital, and I am extremely excited for today's conversation with my friend and colleague Shira Walensky, who is our national practice leader in health and well-being, and she does so many other things uh, within our organization. Today, we're going to be drilling into a topic that's close to my heart. It's become a personal obsession of mine, and I've found a spirit animal in, in Shira. And we're going to be discussing population health management, which is a an extremely hot topic in the world of Moneyball benefits. Um, Shira, do you want to take a second and just say hi, introduce yourself, how long you've been in the, the business, and, and anything else you want to share? Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. I um, I'm, I'm horrified to do the math here, but I guess I've been in the industry for almost 20 years, which is just terrifying. But I I share that because I entered into the industry after about as an aerobics instructor, not knowing a single thing about insurance. I was a wellness person. I was creating newsletters and lunch and learns and educational materials on nutrition and exercise. That is what I thought wellness was 20 years ago. And I evolved from there into a role that uh, allowed me to create employee education materials, primarily focused on nutrition and fitness, which I do think is certainly at the core of a lot of what we'll be talking about and discussing today. But from there, I learned a little bit more about the insurance side of things. And you could keep your people healthy, but if they went and got a colonoscopy that cost $11,000 at patient hospital when they could go get a colonoscopy for $900, then all of the hard work we were doing to keep people healthy in terms of cost savings doesn't show up on the spreadsheet, right? And so I started to get a little bit more uh, focused on the utilization side of things and how it is that people are really consuming care appropriately. And what did it really look like to manage chronic conditions? Well, like many things do, we come full circle. And now um, when we think about our people and controlling costs, we are also thinking about the underlying factors there, which is the human side, which I'm looking forward to, to chatting a little bit more about with you today, Scott. So, so Shira, I know that many of my colleagues that work on the legal team and compliance team here at One Digital spend a lot of time down in Washington, D.C. talking about health policy. And one of the major takeaways when I when I leave Washington, D.C. is that we tend to focus on things like insurance premiums, prescription drug costs, hospital costs. But from a from a coordinated policy perspective, we do a very poor job of having a national conversation about upstream variables that lead to poor health outcomes in the first place, things like diet and exercise, things like healthy environment, clean drinking water, um, food processing standards, very rarely part of our, our national conversation in health policy. When, when we think about population health management, though, um, a lot of times, uh, you know, when I'm working with employers, they immediately go to, to disease management. But what, is, what does population health management mean to you? What, what do you think about when you think about how do you get people on, on tracks to achieve the greatest states of health possible? 
Yeah, Scott, that, that is a great question because I think, um, as you mentioned, we, we have used the term population health management synonymously with disease management with a significant focus on folks that are already sick, right? So managing chronic conditions, looking at what to do once they're already showing up in the claims costs, as opposed to what it is that we can do, to your point, to mitigate some of that risk. Sometimes you can't prevent it but you could delay it or you could reduce the severity of the health risk and ultimately the cost as well. The how is the part that is a bit more of a challenge, right? Because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is human behavior. Whether you're talking about nutrition, exercise, other lifestyle habits, or things like taking your medication, going for your routine visits, right? Getting your HbA1c checked, your foot exam, your eye exam, your flu shot if you're a diabetic. All of those things at the end of the day are an individual choice. So when I think about what does population health management mean to me, I think about what are the fundamental underlying factors that are contributing to those individual lifestyle behaviors and lifestyle choices, the way that people consume healthcare. And so if I had to give you a, a one or a two word answer, I would say mental health. Uh, mental health weaves throughout kind of that opportunity to influence the human behavior, the human side. But the other piece of it too, I think is, uh, especially as employers are being tasked with tackling DEI and B in the workplace, you know, the overlap with health and well-being there to me is social determinants of health, because those are environmental factors, humanistic factors that directly impact health outcomes. In fact, I think there's statistics that say social determinants of health impact health outcomes up to 90%. And those are things like where people live, where people work and play, their physical environment, their socioeconomic status, um, their sense of community. It's, it's having access to the resources, right? Access to care, health literacy. So it is really taking a broader lens to, to looking at how are we going to impact as opposed to just how are we going to manage those with chronic conditions by medication adherence, for example? I, I love that explanation, Shira. You know, when we're down in D.C., again, I, I hate to keep bringing up Washington, D.C., but it, it's where uh, health policy conversations tend to happen. But when we're down in D.C. and we're meeting with lawmakers, and we're talking about a national health care strategy and we're, we're talking about things like social determinants of health as being major predictors for future health outcomes. We see that a lot of the issues are K through 12, right? So, so it starts very young when you, when you're in preschool and you're you're getting your early access to nutrition, getting introduced to literacy and how to read, you know, the environment that you're living in and growing up in, the type of parental and community support you have, um, are all extremely predictive for future health outcomes. But when we enter adulthood, the place where we spend the vast majority of our daylight hours is at the workplace. 
So can you shed some insight into how social determinants of health manifest within the workplace, the types of things that an employer might see uh, impacting employees' performance or, or how they're showing up to work that, that are usually related to some type of social determinant of health? Yeah, and then I want to make sure, too, that we don't leave our audience feeling overwhelmed and flabbergasted in terms of one more thing that is on their plate to tackle and, and respond to. So we want to make sure to, to share some, some solutions and recommendations as well. But in terms of how it might show up in the workplace? Well, when we think about some of the, the indicators that we look at traditionally as, as um, factors influencing population health, we look at things like um, routine care, compliance with recommended screenings, for example. And we think about that often as health literacy or needing to educate employees, which is often a large chunk of, of what needs to be done. But other factors that might influence that would be things like transportation or mm -hmm. child care or other burdens that, that folks are carrying. They might be living in the household taking care of older or sick parents as well as young children. So those are some things that can contribute Certainly from a financial perspective, we know that despite health insurance, oftentimes there are certain medications and treatments and um, co-pays and deductibles that make it challenging for, for folks to get the care and the medication that they need. From a um, social and community perspective, things like eating healthy Certainly, you, you might be familiar with the term food desert. Having access and being able to afford healthy foods is a challenge for people as well, or being able to, maybe they don't have gym memberships and it's not safe to walk around or bike in their neighborhood, those types of things. So Shira, everything you're describing is a condition that is fairly common within the businesses that that we work with we have a, we work with a lot of employee populations i'm sure anybody listening to this can relate to somebody who's a caregiver uh for either a, a, a young child or for an older parent that they that they have to care for outside of work they can be extremely stressful or even as simple as you know not finding the time have feeling like you don't have the time to take care of yourself by going to the gym or going for that really long walk getting those 10,000 steps a day um these are items that seem you know, really stressful to an employee that may not be manifesting in, in, in claims experience, right? They may not be resulting in a direct healthcare cost that is manifesting in the, in, in the claims. But we're, we're, what do you think about these manifesting elsewhere in the business? I mean, what do you think about the impact that an employee who's dealing with a really stressful determinant outside of or variable outside of work um, coming onto the job site? How else, how, how does that impact the business beyond just manifesting in health claims? Scott, look, I, in an ideal scenario, you would have your your folks, in the old days, we used to say, right, like, you, you show up, you do your job, you leave your work at work, and then you, you go home. And we know that's not the case. Number one, a lot of people aren't physically going into work anymore. Number two, from our experience through COVID, we all got a glimpse into what it means when we say somebody is bringing their whole self to work every day. 
What that means from an employer perspective on a day-to-day basis is that your people are showing up attempting to bring their best self to work every day, but whether it's a divorce or losing a parent or taking a kid, dropping them off at college, whatever it is, the human experiences, right, impact our all of us, our ability to show up and be present and productive at work every day. And in some cases, um, some of the stress and experiences of life manifest themselves into anxiety and depression, right? Um, So it can certainly show up that way as well. But I think the opportunity is the more that employers can help their people solve for some of life's challenges and ups and downs, the more that people are bringing their best self to work every day. And that, Scott, is really a response to one of the biggest criticisms that we have experienced um, in terms of population health management, wellness programs in general, right, is why should I invest in keeping my people healthy if they're going to leave and somebody else is going to reap the benefits of that savings when they go to another employer. And if we think about supporting our employees every single day to bring the best of themselves to work, then whether they're with you for six months or six years, then you're reaping the benefit there. The other piece of it too is what would it look like to think about keeping your people with you, right? Especially the current state of of the job market to invest in your people so that they feel valued and supported and they want to stick around. You know, Sherry, it's so funny. I've been with the same company for all intents and purposes for the past almost 11 years now. And, you know, when I think about why have I stayed with this group of people for so long, pay is, of course, you know, there's two amounts of money, enough and not never enough. hurts. Right, right. Never hurts. Like there's enough money and there's not enough money. And, and when you earn enough money, you, you, everything else comes on top, becomes significantly more important. So pay was always a factor. But when I really think critically about why have I been with this company for so long, it's things like flexibility. Um, I get to drop my kid off at daycare, pick my kid up. You know, if I have a sick family member, I can trust that my colleagues will support me in, in making accommodations. I feel like I, I, I'm part of a community in my office. I like the people I work with. I feel connected. Um, there are opportunities for me to get up and move around during the day and not feel like I have to sit around. And over time, it's not just that I'm here, but I, I feel very passionately about bringing my friends and contacts into the One Digital family to come work for us and, and be part of our team. Um, None of this was perhaps planned in a coordinated fashion, but when I look back on it, a lot of what you're talking about is, hey, it's not just about direct healthcare costs. It's about turning somebody into perhaps from a six-month employee to a one-year employee, but not just turning them from a six-month employee to a one-year employee. It's somebody who's going to show up, give their best selves, maybe become a promoter for your organization. And we need to be balancing that that return on investment against health claims and the costs and things that may be a little bit more difficult to quantify. But if you if you think about our own experiences, the places where we spend the most time, you know, it, it's not just pay and and benefits per se. It's 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 kind of everything else, right? I mean, that's that's the the picture that you you're painting here. 
I, I think so, Scott. And it's not to say that we look the other way when it comes to look, particularly for employers that are, they're self-funded, they're making the investment in analytics, they're looking right. at the data, they want to roll their sleeves up, they want to get their hands dirty, they don't want to keep looking at the same trend going up and up and up and up, both from a cost perspective and from the perspective that it's people's lives, right? The the quality of life. So I, I do think that we still prioritize from a healthcare perspective, how do you approach, how do you manage health risk and cost? Right. And I think ultimately we're trying to get to the same place. It's just that the way that we're getting there is a little bit different. You could also tie in heavy incentives, right? You mentioned the compliance perspective. We're very limited now from the rules and regulations and the risk associated with incentives tied to compliance for participating in a disease management program to help improve population health. So what can you do? I think the best case scenario is you look at the folks that have chronic conditions, right? How can you improve their quality of life? Ultimately, that's going to help mitigate the health risk and cost. So it's just looking at it from a different perspective. So we still want them to take their medication. We still want them to make lifestyle changes, right? We still want them typically probably to reduce their, their weight, their BMI that exacerbates several chronic conditions. But rather than it being something that's done to them, right, it's offering the support so that it really truly feels like something that is beneficial to them. So it's making it easier for them to do the things that, that they need to do. And it's not to say there isn't a place for incentives or things like biometric screenings, right? Um, but it's rolling those things out with the appropriate communication within the appropriate culture, right? So if you have folks that are overall disengaged, maybe your company is going through downsizing, that type of thing, the last thing you want to do is come in and roll out a program that is going to feel more like punishment to your employees. Right. But if you're doing the work in terms of communicating and engaging your people in a way that says we care about you and we want to provide the support and the tools and resources for you to live your best life. Um, so Shira, real quick, um, you know, talking about your work with plan sponsors and you're working with a health plan and you're trying to identify opportunities to get ahead of risk or to yeah. mitigate risk. What are some of the what are some of the common data markers that you're looking for within a health plan to identify opportunities to to mitigate risk to the plan and that direct financial cost that a that a plan sponsor would be uh, absorbing? What are what are some of those data points you're looking at? So we look at some of the traditional ones, right, in terms of what are the most frequently used medications and what are what are the gaps in care look like. We look at often those not just with one chronic condition, but there's a significant jump in cost associated with those that have more than one chronic condition or that actually have a mental health diagnosis and a chronic condition. Um, so that does give us sort of a flavor. There are other um, indicators like um, age is 
is an is a risk factor. Um, it, it increases the likelihood of severity as well as the number of conditions. Um, so certainly that could help us build a case for implementing a disease management program as part of a strategy to impact population health. But if I have a plan sponsor that is asking me from a cost containment perspective, what is the number one recommendation or solution? I feel like we should have a drum roll or go to a commercial break or something. Yeah, I'm very excited to hear what this Create is. Create the suspense. Yeah, I'm very excited. I'm, I'm, I'm hanging on here, Shira. <laughs> Scott, I would recommend a care navigation solution because I think if you're coming to me, asking me to give you hard dollar measurable savings. And that's always been a challenge related to disease management programs, um, right? Is proving that you prevented something from not happening. The non-event, quantifying yes. the non-event. Yep. Right. You're making assumptions. Um Obviously, there are educated assumptions, and we know from a data perspective, we know the cost associated with a managed diabetic versus an unmanaged diabetic, or the cost of stage four breast cancer versus stage one or two if it's caught early. We know the costs associated with those things. But if you want to measure the success of, some, of something that I'm recommending based on hard dollar savings, you have to impact utilization. So changing the way that people use healthcare, right? You have overutilizers and then you have that are going and seeking unnecessary care or duplicative care. And then you have those that are underutilizers, right? They're they're not getting the, the recommended care that they need. And so I, I think the best way to do it is um, to think about some of the, the advocacy care navigation treatment decision support solutions. Well, it's, it's such a great tip. You know, when we look at, when we work with our clients for whom we have access to robust data and we're looking at the cost of care, you know, it's, it's easy to get sucked into the conversation of discounts. And this insurance carrier has such great discounts. First of all, discounts of what? The charge master, which is an insane pricing right. game to begin with. But two, it's it when you're dealing with the things that really drive costs within a health plan, they're not one-off office visits or one-off uh, interactions with the system. There's an arc of care, right? Yes. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's hopefully an end. Sometimes that end could be many, many, many years down the road, if at all. But there's there is an arc of care, and what we see is is if we don't have influence. Or, or the ability to help an individual start off their arc of care by going to a, a provider that's practicing evidence-based medicine, by going to a center of excellence that, that's not up ordering needless diagnostic tests, um, by going to a surgical center that has low complication rates or, or achieves superior outcomes, um, we're reactive at that point. Right. Yes. We, we've lost control over the arc of care. And I think one of the critiques that I've encountered over the years regarding disease management programs is that they can be a bit reactive after somebody has already been a course has already been recommended 
to uh, to an individual. That's right. That the disease management program steps in and says, oh, well, your doctor's incorrect or perhaps reconsider what your doctor told you. It's really about trying to get them on the right path right at the outset when they're seeking care in the first place. Yes. And in terms of value, you look at implementing a solution that's going to bring more value out of the programs and resources that you already have in place whether that be your 401k or uh, programs through the carrier, or maybe even local resources. So if you can get folks utilizing and engage them and have them be aware of what you've already got in place, and that's a metric, right? You can measure that. Did we increase the number of folks that are on our HSA plan? Did we increase the number of people that are accessing the EAP or participating and engaging in a disease management program or some other resource, maybe MSK that you already have in place? That's a metric um, from a care navigation perspective to say that it's working, right? Um, The other piece of it, right, is I know that we're focused on the cost containment side, but going back to the people side, right? This is a service that, yes, will save the plan sponsor money, but also can be positioned in a way that to the employees, you're giving them the experience of having a doctor in the family. So at a time that they're experiencing something that might be very stressful, that you're giving them access to that concierge level care to navigate through the healthcare system, their benefits, and really their their treatment options. That is very impactful. So you're you're kind of tackling both sides. You're improving your employee value proposition and implementing a service that is going to help contain costs. Receiving superior care at the right cost is a win-win for everybody involved. And yes. you know it's funny, I, I I when I talk to my colleagues in the industry, generally, whether they're at One Digital or through lobbying efforts down in DC, the story I hear time and again is despite the fact that you and I swim in this soup every single day, right, that we're involved in healthcare every day, when we are in the position of having to navigate complex scenarios in our system, um, we're often no different than somebody who who doesn't swim in this soup every day. Um, We need just as much handholding. We need just as much insight. And, uh, and, and we need, we need all the help we can get. So it's, it's, it's relatable beyond just, you know, let quote unquote lay individuals who aren't in this, even we need that help when we are facing complex scenarios in our healthcare system. Yes, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. So I I wanted to ask you about, you brought up a a question that, or or, or, uh, I'm sorry, you brought up a social determinant that I encounter all the time with my employer organizations. And there are two that kind of go hand in hand. I'm interested in your thoughts on this. When I worked for my law firm you know, a decade ago, I had, I think, 10 vacation days and five sick days. And there was an expectation that I would go and get a well visit, right? And I felt fine. I felt, I felt okay. Um, I was not burning vacation days on a well visit and vacation time on a well visit. The other scenario was, you know, when I lived in a city, I didn't own a car. So, so going to get that well visit necessitated me 
taking more time off than somebody who owned a car, hopping on a bus, which is just a joy in Philadelphia, you know, right. to navigate public <laughs> transportation on a, on a daily basis, you know, hopping on a bus, riding to a, a, a doctor's office that wasn't necessarily en route and, uh, and, and attempting to access care and, and attempting to get my well visit that way. Um, I don't think I ever got that well visit. Uh, you, rose the, you, you brought up the issue of this, this, this common scenario of, of transportation and, yes. and accessing preventive care, getting ahead of what are some of the solutions you see employers doing to make it easier for somebody, for 25-year-old Scott Wham to go get a well visit <laughs> with his 10 vacation days and five sick days, right? Uh, what are you seeing some of the more forward-thinking companies do to overcome those very common barriers to, to care? So a couple of things, it depends on how out of the box you really want to get, right? So <clears throat> while there are several employers that we work with that have unlimited PTO, many do not. And so we do have folks that will offer PTO as a reward or an incentive for going to get your well visit. In terms of transportation, we do have a lot of employers that offer lifestyle benefits. So where they give, a, instead of a wellness program, they offer a stipend, a, a well-being stipend, where employees can use those funds towards whatever's meaningful and important to them. So it could be a transportation service like Uber. It could be meal home delivery. It could be towards childcare. It could be um, towards learning a new language. It could be whatever falls into however you want to define total well-being. So that would be another option. I think, um, you know, the other piece of it is to really think about, okay, what is it ultimately that we are trying to achieve? Because the other option is to offer on-site biometric screenings and pros and cons. If you are going to offer biometric screenings and you are going to offer an incentive, you offer it to everybody for choosing to participate. However, the recommendations from an evidence-based perspective don't necessarily require everybody to have an annual physical every year. So there's a little bit of contraindication there, right? You're encouraging overutilization of care. That being said, you could in fact encourage overutilization of care. So folks that don't really need to get a recommended physical, maybe they only need to get it every three years based on their age and risk factors. If you're encouraging them to get it every year, then maybe they go get the physical or their, their numbers, something's abnormal, there's a false positive, and then they get referred out for extra testing. So from a cost-saving perspective, it can be hard to illustrate that based on the investment for those services that you actually yielded an ROI. So what you're what you're arguing is is essentially that you can lead to some pretty negative cost outcomes if if you do a, a mass biometric screen similar to what we used to see ten years ago. You know when I first entered the industry and we were coming out of the heels of a recession, the job market was not what it is today, and there there was a lot more I would say stick than carrot present in a lot of corporate wellness programs uh, or employer-based wellness programs. Generally, you're saying that there could be some unintended cost implications and, and maybe cultural implications if you go down that road today. 
Yeah, so I would say, okay, controversial warning. That Good, yes. do it. Yeah, um, let's do it. Okay, so yeah. uh, there's there's two sides <laughs> to it, and I don't think that there's a right or wrong. I think it has it really goes back to how are you defining success of your initiative, and this goes for any health and well being initiative, and we can talk about some other examples too. But if you want to implement on site screenings as a cost saving solution, I would caution that because it is hard to look at what you're spending to have the on-site biometric screenings and what the potential outcome of those, right? Possible referrals to your PCP and then referrals for possibly retesting. So then you're paying for lab results again and potentially referrals unnecessarily to a specialist, right? That, That could happen. However, from a cultural perspective, to say, this is so important to us. We care so much. We know how busy you are. We know how hard you're working. We know that you don't have time. We don't want you to worry about taking time off for transportation. This is part of who we are as an organization is we are proactive, right? We take ownership. We take accountability in our work. And we want that to be part of our culture as well. And you roll out on-site biometric screenings and you have a lot of people, you know, that maybe from your claims, you have a lot of people that haven't been to the PCP. They're not compliant with recommended care. They get abnormal results and then they go see a doctor. Again, maybe that doesn't yield the cost savings, the ROI immediately, but you're impacting people's lives. And if you're finding one or two individuals that you're catching early that have hypertension, that maybe you are preventing from having a catastrophic event, or you find somebody that goes for their, they take their lab results and they go to a primary care physician and they get the mammography that they've been putting off and they find early stage breast cancer. I'm giving myself chills because That's why I do what I do for a living, right? You can't put a number on this. So it is. It's a a cultural investment that sends a a cultural investment. That sends a very clear message. Yeah, I I think so. And that's why um, it goes back to it's, it's not right or wrong. It's just how are you defining success? And we see it all the time in terms of the digital wellness platforms, right? People look at, they measure success based on participation in those programs or people earning a certain number of points. Okay, but what is it that you're ultimately after? Do you want the pretty perfect report? Or are you really trying to influence the total well-being? Or maybe it's social connectivity, right? what is it that you're really trying to accomplish? Because it might not show up looking at the number of people and how many points they're earning in a wellness program. So Shira, I, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time uh, to be on the podcast today. I said this to you before before we even hit record that you're coming back and we're gonna we're gonna unpack a lot of the concepts that you that you address today. Um, uh, there's so much here. There's so much to talk about. It's endlessly fascinating. Um, and, and, and it's, it's important because I think if anyone's listening to this and they think about the jobs they had that they hated, right. 
um, that they didn't enjoy, the companies they work with or employers they, they worked with that they didn't enjoy. I argue if you haven't had a bad job, you haven't lived. Right. That's part it's part of life experience. Like having having a bad job is part of the the sauce that makes life interesting. Um, it gives you perspective when you land at a good spot, um, yes. which I have certainly had over the past 11 years. You know, I, I, I'm very appreciative to the culture I'm part of now because I have something to compare it to. I have That's something right. to compare it to. Um, but uh, but but there's so much there's so much to unpack, un, unpack here. But but when you really get down to it and people really start thinking about their own experiences, there's a lot there's a lot to this that's fairly intuitive it just takes some time and dedication to to map out okay what do we want to accomplish culturally what do we what do we want to put in place to make sure we're identifying risk markers within our plan and having putting the company in the best position to financially thrive but the opportunity goes so far beyond that which is building a profitable vibrant successful organization that 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 really has the potential to impact lives. So we have a lot to unpack. If somebody's interested in going down this road with one digital, how do they get started? What should they do? I would say to talk to your one digital consultant, look at the data, whatever data you have available, right, to identify where are you starting from. And listen, for any of these programs, If you don't have employees engage and participate in your disease management program, you have to have people utilizing the program in order to experience cost savings or mitigating health risk. So there has to be that engagement strategy that lays on top of whatever initiatives that you are looking to put in place. Do we have any literature that is worth plugging that would potentially serve as an overview for an individual that's interested in learning more about uh, some of these strategies? Actually, Scott, we have a cost containment webinar that is coming up that I think we'll be unpacking some of this information a little bit more and also have some supporting materials that employers can refer back to. So Go to OneDigital.com and check out our upcoming events, get registered, and hopefully you can learn a a thing or two from there. That was a perfect plug, Shira. (laughs) Uh, Anybody who's interested in in speaking with Shira or members of her team, by all means, get in contact with with your OneDigital consultant. If you're not yet a OneDigital client, you should be one. Uh, uh, reach out to us. We're happy to have a conversation. So thank you to Shira again for joining us on this episode of the Moneyball Benefits Podcast. Until next time, this is Scott Lamb signing off.